trying to charge us up for the things that are happening in our church. I do hope that there will be a good turnout to the workday next week. I know that uh, Perry Powell has single-handedly done a lot of the work around this church, and I know Hank Redderson has helped him some, and uh, there are others that occasionally have stepped up, but this is a time of the year that we can show our appreciation to Perry by being faithful to be out here next Sunday morning. So I strongly encourage you to take part in that uh, special time at 9 o'clock. An epigram of life reads, if you tell a man that there are 581,678,934,341 stars in the universe, he will believe you. But if you, but if a sign says fresh paint, he will make a personal investigation. I'd like to put the epigram another way. If the government puts up a sign telling people that the earth is billions of years old and that the fossil record proves evolution, they will believe the government without any doubt. But if the government puts up a sign saying, road closed ahead, I, for one, will doubt the government every time. And in most cases, I'm right. The government's wrong. And I know many others are like that. We have a problem today. And the problem is one of inverted values, of misplaced trust, of twisted thinking. As a result, we have failed to investigate and evaluate what is truly important while becoming obsessive compulsives over the insignificant and often irrelevant matters of life. As the saying goes, we are experts on majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would help us as we consider this very, very important subject of doubt. It's something that we all struggle with in, at one level or another. Father, we, we commit this time to you and pray you would instruct our hearts and show us things that we need to hear and see from your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, following our morning service and what Dr. Hendricks, I always laughed at this, Dr. Howard Hendricks calls the time when the pastor goes to the back of the church, he called it the glorifying of the worm ceremony. In any case, a few weeks ago, during the glorifying of the worm ceremony, I was shaking hands with people on the way out of church, and a number of people were sharing their appreciation. And there was one person that hadn't been here for a while, and they were making a comment that stuck with me. They said to me something like this, Pastor, you still preach with passion. I thought, well, that's an interesting comment. It sounds very nice, and I appreciate the remark. But I thought about what they were saying, and it's sort of a nice way of saying, Pastor, you do really believe what you preach, don't you?
And as I ponder this and other similar comments I've heard over the years, I'm reminded that there are people in our congregation, even this morning, who are having a hard time believing what God is saying from His Word. What I'm saying as a preacher on behalf of God. Comments made to encourage me reveal a sad truth. And that is that many people are held back by an obstacle which has made it almost impossible for them to move forward in their spiritual journey. And that obstacle is the obstacle of doubt. Doubt has kept many non-Christians, non-Christians from believing the gospel that Jesus died for their sins and that he rose again, securing for them eternal salvation if they only believe in Jesus. But that's the hitch. People say you make it so easy. All they have to do is believe. That's right, but that's not easy for many people. But you know, likewise, doubt has paralyzed many Christians who have eternal life, but who because of their doubt have trouble moving forward and laying hold of all that God has given them in Christ. A mountain of doubt, if you will, has slid across the pathway of their life and has caused them to stop dead in their tracks because of doubt. On the one hand, the huge obstacle of doubt has caused a lot of Christians and non-Christians to turn away from the pursuit of truth toward the pursuit of religious experience. Friends, this is a serious problem today and I'm convinced that the problem has its roots in doubt. People who doubt the existence of heaven or hell who wonder about the existence of the Christian God, who have a hard time swallowing the teaching that faith in Christ is the only way to have eternal life, or have the impression that the Bible is an untrustworthy book, are not going to have much interest in singing about heaven, in knowing more about God, in considering the heart of the gospel, or in hearing the word of God. What they will tolerate, and perhaps even seek after, are meaningful religious experiences that leave them feeling good about themselves and their world. What they will demand are communicators who will tell them how to be a better person, a better co-worker, a better husband, a better wife, a better parent. What they will look for are religions. Both Christian and non-Christian traditions, from both non-Christian and Christian traditions, that focus on how to improve their lives. On the other hand, like leaven spreading through a lump of dough, doubt has spread through the, our whole generation, if you will, turning us into a generation of skeptics. Most of us grew up being taught the theory of evolution as scientific fact. I did. We were shown that God was irrelevant in our homes, at least in some cases. We were taught to ignore God 
mock Christian values and criticize the Bible in college. That was cool. That was in. We were infused with a kind of personal, cultural, and social evolutionary theory early in our adult life that left us convinced that progress was inevitable. And an improvement was something that we should strive for all the time. And we were sure that life would be better in the future. Let down and disillusioned, the things did not turn out quite the way we envisioned. Postmodernism has become the reigning mindset today. We no longer believe that personal, cultural, social evolution is inevitable. Or that progress is something that's going to happen. Today we worship at the throne of self. Everything. Every experience. Every value. Every dream. Every perception of reality. Every belief. Most. Must pass one test. The test of self. It's not is this a value that we embrace as a people, but do I embrace it? The question is whether I want to do this. Everything now becomes subject to, to me. We are taught only to trust ourselves now. The only, the only thing that we can depend on are our own senses. Our own ability to make sense out of the world in which we live. For many of us born prior to the postmodern age, this is the end of a long journey that has been shaped by our doubts. But one thing is certain, that if we do not deal with doubt, we will continue to become more skeptical, more cynical, more sarcastic, and more disillusioned with life that will undoubtedly lead to an age of increasing despair beyond postmodernism. People say, what's after postmodernism? I'll tell you what's after it. If things don't change, it's an age of despair. And I'm not just speaking about non-Christians, friends. This is true of Christians as well. All of us, to some extent, struggle with doubt. Uncertainty, indecision over what we believe or what we don't believe. Mark Littleton says it well when he writes this. Doubt hangs it, its hat on all Christians. None can honestly say they've escaped it. How do you deal with doubt? That venomous enemy that muscles its way into your heart, claws at your faith, and slowly wrenches the life out of it. How do you deal with doubt? Christian or non-Christian, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, how do you deal with doubt? I would like for you to join me today as we look at one of the most infamous doubters of all times. What's his name? Thomas. He is widely known as the Doubting Thomas. We've come to this portion of Scripture in our study of the Gospel of John. And we meet a person a disciple of Jesus, whom he loved deeply, named Thomas, who just can't seem to get beyond his doubt. Doubt overwhelmed Thomas, and in due time, 
However, Thomas will overcome his doubt. And you realize that he will go forth as a, as a dynamic apostle? In fact, Christian tradition and historians basically accept the, the premise that Thomas went forth eastward toward what we now call Iraq, onward to Iran, and then onward to India and established a Christian witness in all of those places as he spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. He got beyond his doubts. And so as we consider the obstacle of doubt in our life today from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 29, perhaps we can learn a thing or two from Thomas about how to overcome, or we might put it in the title of the message, how to get the doubt out of a doubting Thomas. Out of our own life, for that matter. So how did Thomas get the doubt out of his life? Thomas is mentioned in the other Gospels several times, but only in a list. We actually get to know Thomas in the book, or the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, there are three references to Thomas, and all of them reveal his, his doubting character. Listen to this. On one particular uh, uh, situation, Jesus had held up going to heal Lazarus. And the disciples were trying to talk him out of going back to Jerusalem now that Lazarus had died. Because it was there that they were persecuted and sort of run out of town. And they were convinced the Jews were going to kill them. So here's what Thomas said. This is his contribution. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. That sounds just like what I'd say. <laughs> Let's just go ahead. We might as well die. Sarcastic. Doubt always leads to sarcasm. Another passage, John fourteen five. Thomas said to him, the Lord had been talking about going to heaven. He, the great passage in John 14, 1 to 3, that I go and prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you unto myself and so forth. I mean, he spells it all out. Says he's going to the Father. But Thomas doesn't get it. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? He just told you, Thomas. I don't buy it. He's doubting. And then, of course, we come to our passage this morning where he talks about the fact that if he doesn't stick his hands in his side and touch the, the nail prints, he isn't going to believe no matter what you say. So what turned Thomas around? A man plagued by doubts. He doubted Jesus' wisdom. He doubted Jesus' teaching. He doubted Jesus' person. How did Thomas pull out of a tailspin of doubt? And to help us appreciate the answer to that question, I'd like just to walk us through John chapter 20, verses 19, toward the end of the chapter. But before we do that, well, let's, get a, let's get a little perspective, a little background that helps. First of all, this is the, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. According to John chapter 20, the women had come to the tomb early in the morning to prepare, to continue preparations in the, on the body of Jesus for, bur uh, for the burial. He'd already been buried, but they were going to come and prepare the body additionally. He'd already risen, and it was before dawn. They found the body not there. The tomb was empty. So they ran to tell Peter. Peter and John then came together to examine the situation. 
They carefully examined the evidence. That's one thing that's brought out in the, the details there of the text, which we looked at on Easter Sunday. They carefully examined the evidence. And what was their conclusion? Did they remember that Jesus said, I'm going to rise again from the dead? No, that never seemed to enter their mind. They concluded that somebody stole the body. Later, Mary Magdalene, when Jesus appeared to her, she was carrying on a conversation with him, not realizing he was Jesus. And she said, just tell us where you've taken the body, thinking he was the gardener, so I can go deal with that and bring it back. They were all convinced that Jesus, the body of Jesus, had been stolen. So Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Finally, he takes the scales off her eyes and she's, he's standing in front of her. And she embraces him as a real body, material substance body, not some kind of ghost. And she just cannot believe it. It's Jesus. What happens next? Jesus says, go and tell my disciples. And so that's where we pick up the story in John chapter 20, verse 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now, they had heard the reports, because there were others that had heard or seen Jesus that day as well. And this was toward the evening of the day in which Jesus had risen from the dead. They'd heard the reports, but here's what it says. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, the disciples were probably mauling over all that had happened including the reported appearances of Jesus. They were, they were kicking these things around between themselves. But in the light of this, they were equally concerned about the Jews who were now circulating a story that they had stolen the body of Jesus. So they're locked behind closed doors. They're, they're just up in the air. They don't know what to think. The reports, what they saw with their own eyes, the empty tomb and so forth. Nobody seemed to say, do you recall what he said? So what happened next? Jesus came and stood in their midst, it says. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, You bad boys. No, he didn't say that at all. He said, Peace to you. Shalom alakum. They had deserted him. But there was no word of rebuke on Jesus' part. Only words that would become the possession of of all who believed in him. Shalom alakum. Peace to you. Furthermore, if this room was the same room that they had been meeting in, the upper room, what we call the upper room, for the Last Supper, Jesus is picking up where he left off just three nights before. When they left the room, these were his last words as they left the room. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And now these are the next words that he says to them in that room. Peace be with you. These were the same words he spoke in other times of trouble. You recall when they were on the Sea of Galilee and the boat was looking like it was going down on this violent storm and suddenly Jesus shows up and they think they're seeing a ghost and Jesus shows them it's not a ghost. He says, peace be unto you. His trial and crucifixion had left them troubled and uncertain about the future. They had deserted him. They denied him and they felt very guilty about that. I would have. 
And they also feared the Jews still. And the first word Jesus speaks to them after the resurrection are not words of censure. You bad boys, but words of peace. Born out of a love and a heart, a heart of love for them. Words of peace are also the first words he would speak to doubting Thomas. In just a moment, we'll read about that. Same words. Now, there's a great application here as we sort of introduce the subject of doubt. I think one of the problems we have as Christians is when we doubt things in the Scripture, when we're struggling with doubt, we sort of feel guilty. And like, this is not right for a Christian to feel like this. And we feel like that the Lord is going to rebuke us or, or censure us in some way. But I think this, this comes back to us, driving home the point that although we may feel anxious and guilty about our, doubt, our doubts and perhaps even embarrassed, the first words that Jesus would speak to you or to me is, Peace be to you. Not, oh, you bad people. When it comes to our doubts, what our Lord wants for us first and foremost even before our doubts are dealt with, is a sense of peace. A confidence that He will calm our troubled hearts and lives today, just as He troubled them when He he comforted them and calmed them when we trusted Him as our Savior. We don't fear the future after death because He's given us eternal life. Neither do we need to fear the troubles of today and doubt His presence and His ability to deal with those things because He wants us to be calm and to realize He's here and He wants us to experience His peace. Now, in the case of His disciples, Jesus not only calmed their troubled hearts and lives, He turned their sadness into joy. Read on, verse 20 of John John chapter 20. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side... Then the disciples were glad when they saw it, or saw the Lord. They were glad. Literally, they took pleasure in the Lord when they saw Him. Now, after denying Him, it would have been natural to fear Him. But Jesus successfully dispelled their fears, and they were pleased when they saw Him. Then Jesus continues, and we read, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Not only did he bring peace and joy, he brought purpose and meaning to their lives. He commissioned them as his disciples. He commissioned them now to be apostles. Many people say, what's the difference between being an apostle and a disciple? A disciple is one who is a follower, a learner. These were disciples up to this point. They had sat under the feet of Jesus and had learned from him. Now they were going to be sent forth as apostles. In fact, the word apostle means one sent. The verb form is being used right here in this passage when he says, I send you, or as the Father sent me. They're now being sent forth as apostles to represent him in the world. This is a very significant thing. It's a life with meaning and purpose. He also gave them what they will need to be successful as well as authority to carry out their mission. Notice the next two verses which have caused unbelievable confusion. And if you want to know more what these verses mean, I would invite you to come again next week. Verse 22, And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That verse has obviously been abused 
in the Christian world, and most of you might be aware of where that's been abused. I'm not going to go into it today. But in any case, we'll look at that next week. What he is giving them is authority, and he's giving them the power, the life that they will need in order to carry out this mission. Now, all of this was done for these ten disciples. There was just one problem. There was one of them that was missing. All of them received this blessing but one, Thomas. And so we pick up the story about Thomas in verse 24 of chapter 20. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, and we're not given any reason why, it doesn't rebuke him or anything like that, so we aren't assuming any problem here. It's just he wasn't, didn't happen to be with them in the room. The other disciples therefore said, and literally the word means, and kept on saying to him, We have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord, Thomas. We've seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will, and this is literal, in the Greek language, there's a double negative here, which you can't translate into English properly, but let me translate it for you. I will not never believe. That's what he's literally saying. Unless I can do these things, I will not never believe. I don't care what you guys say. I don't believe it. Now, the other disciples expected him to be ecstatic. Instead, he emphatically said he would not believe them. Now, these are not a bunch of religious loonies. You know the kind of person, the kind that sees Jesus in a grilled cheese sandwich. That's not what we're talking about here. These were men who he had trusted and ministered with for the past three or four years. In a court of law in that day, it would only take two witnesses to establish a matter, a truth of a matter. But here was Thomas with ten trusted friends who were all witnessing to the same thing. They saw Jesus alive. They saw him alive in his resurrection body. Not a ghost. They saw the real deal. They saw the nail prints. And they saw the scar in his, the hole in his side. They saw it all. Now, for a whole week, the disciples kept talking about the resurrection of Jesus. But Thomas remained unconvinced for a whole week, filled with doubt. Only one thing could turn Thomas around, and we read about it beginning in verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them this time. Jesus came, the doors being shut for fear of the Jews, and stood in their midst and said, Peace to you. Peace to you. And you would think he would be angry. With Thomas. I mean, how absurd can you get, Thomas? Ten of your, your closest friends said to you, I'm alive, and you don't believe even them? He didn't say that. Our Lord is full of grace and peace. And he says, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, and this is the ultimate act of grace, I think. 
He said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Jesus was making a point that he had risen from the dead with the same body in which he had gone into death. And that was the issue, friends. All of them, would have, it would have been much easier for all of them to have accepted the idea that Jesus died and that he rose again in spirit and went to heaven as a spirit. They could also conceive, perhaps, that on the way up to heaven as a spirit, that he would appear to them as a ghost or spirit being on the way and pat them on the back and tell them to, to go forth and do it. But a resurrection of the very body that died that was afflicted on their behalf, that was, that was something they weren't prepared for. And Thomas in particular was emphatic that he would not believe something so outrageous. So what does he do? Jesus exhorts him, do not be an unbelieving person, but be believing person. This is an adjective, not a verb. Believe, Thomas, that I have risen from the dead with the very same body that was put to death for you and for the whole world. And this is what Thomas said, verse 28, And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, my Messiah and King, and my God, the Son of God in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, my Lord and my God. Friends, you can't find a stronger statement in Scripture of the deity of Christ. And Jesus never rebuked him for it. Because indeed, he was his Lord and his God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed, blessed. Oh, how happy and fortunate are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I thought about that. Why is that? Why would they be more blessed? I would think it would be better to, to see Jesus in person than have to come through the channels that we come through today. And yet Jesus says we're happy and blessed because we've overcome our doubts and concerns not on the basis of what we have seen in an instant. You know, sometimes you can second judge your, you know, I thought I saw something, but maybe I didn't see it quite like it was, or maybe it was a mirage or whatever. But we've overcome our doubts and our concerns on the basis of the evidence that is clearly revealed. The cumulative evidence supersedes a visual confirmation in that it enables a person to see the bigger picture. And it is the bigger picture that nourishes faith. I've wondered as, as the years have rolled by why I haven't had doubts. I have doubts about, my, about God using me at times, that's for sure. And I've doubted God's, perhaps his, in, in, in secretly, my, maybe his power to work with me or whatever. But the problem is usually me. But I wonder why my faith has stayed strong. And I think that the reason is simply because I have a sort of a job, a job benefit here of getting into the Word of God and as the picture gets bigger and bigger and all these parts just seem to all fit together. 
It just, it just can't happen by accident. This is for good. This is true. There's no doubt in my mind. And I think those of you who have seasoned in your Christian life and you've taken in so much truth of God's Word and you've seen all of these things come together, your faith is so much stronger because you've digested it. They heard the Word, but they never seemed to, to take a hold of it until after what happened on this day. Where can those who will believe find the cumulative evidence? John, the writer of the gospel, continues by explaining that that is the reason why he's written the gospel that we're reading and studied and have gone through. To help those who are out there reading this book to know that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. Notice verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs, miracles, Evidences in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Signs, miracles, the miraculous things he did, the miraculous things he said, the miraculous thing he accomplished in dying for our sins and then raising his own body from the dead. This is evidence that can lead a person to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It won't take a visual appearance if you'll take into account the cumulative evidence. As we've walked through this account of what happened after Jesus had risen from the dead, there are at least four things that we can learn about doubt. About what causes doubt. And how to get the doubt out of a doubting Thomas out of our lives. First, Doubt begins with a willful rejection of the evidence. Doubt begins with a willful rejection of the evidence. Thomas's attitude toward the evidence stands in stark contrast to John and Peter, who, after examining the evidence at the tomb, were prepared for the testimony of Mary, who said she had seen Jesus alive. Their ignorance of the Word of God made these disciples slow to grasp the resurrection of Jesus. But at least they were willing to consider the evidence. On the other hand, Thomas deliberately and forcefully, not never will I accept this, rejected the clear testimony of ten fellow disciples, trusted friends, and said he would not never believe regardless of what they said. Likewise, the, today, the problem of doubt begins with a willful rejection of the evidence. It may start with an out-of-hand rejection of the clear testimony of the Bible, simply because it speaks about the supernatural or about, about God. And there are many people that are just totally biased against God and the supernatural, the whole idea of it. You know, just turn on your television. Listen to the news. You'll see it blatantly in our faces anymore. The remedy for getting out the doubt in this situation where a person has willfully rejected the evidence is for them to become open and objective. Be open and objective. We need to open 
be open to what the Bible says and objectively consider the evidence it presents and the testimony it gives. That's simple. It's what any intelligent person who is not biased is willing to do, is at least look at the evidence. Consider yourself a member of a jury called to look at the case for the bodily resurrection of Jesus, or the deity of Jesus, or the reality of heaven and hell, or His gift of eternal life to all who believe only in Him for their salvation, or for the credibility of the Bible as the inspired Word of God. See yourself as a jury. Whatever has become a stumbling block for your faith and willingness to believe, drop your guard and examine the evidence. That's the remedy. Until you do that, it isn't going to happen otherwise. Now, there's some very practical helps out there today in the form of books that have been written to help the skeptical person make an objective decision about the veracity of the Bible and the things that are claimed in the Bible about Jesus Christ. I've got those on the overhead above. But, for instance, one of the great, great apologetic books that have been used in many people's lives is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I like, for those of you that are a little more scientifically oriented, Many Infallible Proofs by Henry Morris. For those that are philosophically oriented and have a lot of philosophical questions, Ken Bow and Larry Moody written a book, I'm Glad You Ask. I use both of those books in our theology study. Norman Geisler has become one of the great voices of apologetics today. That is the defense of our faith. He's written a couple books that would have particular relevance to non-believers, non-Christians. He says uh, one book is, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Another book is, When Skeptics Ask, a handbook of Christian evidence. He also wrote a great big thick book called Baker's Dictionary of Christian Evidence. He edited that. Josh McDowell is well known as, uh, when he was a young man, wrote uh, a couple of, uh, a book that started the, his writing career, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And uh, it was an overwhelming book at the time to sort of over, overpower people with uh, evidence that, uh, about uh, the scriptures and about Christ. It just are powerful. Today, a man by the name of Lee Strobel has written The Case for Christ. And I, that's an excellent book that uh, you might want to give to someone. There's a number of other things out there, and I know you could name some that I haven't mentioned, but the point is, there are helps out there. If you're struggling with your faith, or you know of somebody that is, or the need to believe, help them out. What they need is to be open and objective. They need to drop their guard. I'm not asking anyone. I mean, this idea you hear people talk about, all the time, oh, to be a religious person, you've got to jump by blind faith and not think about anything. That's just absolute, utter nonsense, friends. It's just utter nonsense. My faith is not built on anything blind. It's built on the revealed Word of God. And I believe there's absolute proof that this is the inspired Word of God. And there are objective proofs beyond the Bible that prove the Bible is, is of God. It's not like you're taking something blindly. I mean, it's true we can't put these things in a test tube and test them with a, with a scientific method. But on the other hand, to the person who's objective, I think there is enough evidence to overwhelm the skeptic. 
before we go on to the other reasons for doubt, we might do well to ask this question. Why are some people like Thomas and others so bent on rejecting something without even glancing at the evidence? I've always had that question. Why are they just so bent on it? Most people seem predisposed to reject out of hand evidence and testimony God puts before them. And I I want to know why. The next three causes of doubt can also help us understand why some people seem predisposed to doubt and why they reject the evidence out of hand. So let's go to the second matter here when it comes to doubt. The second observation or principle. Doubt may follow the seeming silence of God during a period of suffering. Doubt may follow the seeming silence of God during a period of suffering. The second cause of doubt. Who knows? Perhaps Thomas was angry with God because he left Jesus hanging there on the cross. That was his Messiah that he had put his faith in. And here he is hanging on a cross. God, why didn't you deliver him then and there? To allow the Messiah, King of Israel, to suffer such a horrible and humiliating death. After all, God, you had the power to do something then and you didn't. Why would you do something now? A little late, isn't it? Sure, the Spirit of Jesus is in heaven. We need Him here. We are all, and as a nation, doomed now that you have taken Him away. Many of us doubt to the point that we seem convinced in our doubt. We may doubt to the point that we are convinced that the God of the Bible does not even exist. Why? Because God didn't seem to be there for us when we needed Him. The death of a loved one, a lost dream, a tragic failure. God, you were not there. You must not therefore exist. You must not care. You probably don't even exist. Because you weren't there for me when I needed you. How many times have we heard that? I've heard that so many times as a pastor from non-believers. If we're going to deal with our doubts, we need to acknowledge that our problem may be rooted in our suffering. Or the suffering of a loved one. During which time God may seem to have been silent. Then we need to apply the remedy. And what's the remedy? The remedy for getting the doubt out as a result of suffering is we need to look up and behold our God. Look up and behold our God. The heavens do declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Our God is indeed too small. The way we think of God is that we've just made him too small. And he's not. He's beyond our ability to put in a, in a box. We need to consider the immensity of God's love and mercy and grace. We need to consider his just and holy and true nature. We need to consider his infinite experience of time and space. And we need to consider the unimaginable depths of his power and majesty and heights. We need to think beyond the confines of this life and this world, beyond space and time, and realize that what happens here is only a blip on the screen. Only a blip in God's infinite measure of time and space, which is infinite. We must realize that God is preparing us for opportunities that far exceed anything we could ever hope to accomplish in this very short and limited experience of life. One of the things that I have, I know some people feel like that we perhaps push what is called grace theology too much in our church. 
But before we're too hard on us for the convictions we have about grace theology, before I really came to understand many of the things that I've been teaching you, the whole goal seemed to be simply to get a person saved. And by that it meant we get them to say they believe in Jesus and they're committed to Jesus and then boom, we drop them and we go on to the next person. Because it's just a matter of getting a person over the line so they're on their way to heaven and they got their fire insurance and that's the end of it. And that was where I was for many years. My question is, what do you do with them once you get them there to heaven? A golf? Gardening? Harp strumming? Target shooting? Motorcycle riding? You see, grace theology opens up to me, and I hope to you as well, it's opened up to me, the scriptures, so that I begin to see that there is an enormous wealth and opportunity that await God's people who live in the light of eternity. In other words, this is just a blip on the screen. And whether we live for 30 years or 60 years or 90 years, it's still short. And the question is, are we living that period of time, however long it is, are we living it in the light of eternity? And if we are... We're going to gain something that is eternal. And the further we get away from this period of time, the more minuscule this life will seem. But remember, there's a final chapter that's to be written that won't last for 30, 60, or 90 years. It will never end. And if we get a hold of that, it will change our life. Thomas failed to look up into the heavens and consider the power of God. If God can make a universe, he can raise a human body from the dead. I can't understand people that have a problem with the resurrection. Just to in our families and our extended relationships. And may Jesus Christ, our Savior, be pleased as we take his word forth, committed to believing all that it says. In his name we pray. Amen. Can we get you to stand?